Hello, everyone. Quick update. The podcast has moved. We have a new website, which is www.lionrock.life slash courage to change podcast. Again, that's www.lionrock.life slash courage to change podcast. And our new email address is podcast at lionrock.life. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Arlena Allen, and she is the writer and producer and host of a podcast called Oh Dat Chat. And I came up with a theme song, Oh Dat Chat, uh, Oh Dat Chat, da, 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 Oh Dat Chat, da, 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 Oh Dat Chat. O-D-A-A-T, one day at a time, chat podcast. Arlena has been free of addiction from drugs and alcohol for 26 years and has dedicated her life to helping others do the same. She's been married for 20 years and is a mother of two. She is a lifelong seeker of truth and shares lessons learned in her writings and podcasts. And she's one funny and badass bee. Uh, You guys, Arlena and I are going to be best friends forever, BFF. She is amazing. Uh, Podcast host, interviews other podcast hosts. So much fun. At one point, I'm pretty sure she was turning the tables on me, so it's a good thing I'm going on her podcast. You guys, she's just amazing. She's just hysterical. She's amazing. She's been sober almost three decades and has focused a lot of her work on building women's self-esteem. She's funny. She's smart. She's talented. You're gonna love her. All right. Episode 71. Let's do this. you here Arlena thank you for being here I am so excited to do this I was like oh she's like my long lost little sister I know or child because you're like <laughs> 20 years younger than me I'll, I'll take it I'll be your sister your child <laughs> okay take... we're family just, yeah just adopt me I'm good we're the I'm same good. crazy family so yeah good. exactly we, we actually are part of the same crazy recovery family yes ma'am so how long have you been clean and sober I quit everything. My first clean date was April 23rd of 1994. It's been a minute. <laughs> no one's no one can do math anymore, don't worry. Oh, okay. Yeah, 26 years. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And uh and so okay, so 26 years. And where were you living when you got when you decided to stop? I was living in the San Jose, California, you know, they call it like the San Francisco Bay area. And I was actually 25 when I had my last drink of alcohol. It was on my 25th birthday at the Saddle Rack, which no longer exists. It's a huge cowboy bar. Saddle Rack. Yeehaw! Mm -hmm. (laughs) Can we swear on this podcast? Mm -hmm. I definitely um, enjoyed my cowboy Wrangling day, <laughs> cowboy wrangler, wranglers, a cowboy wrangler, wrangler, wrangler. I loved. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and um, I really loved the cowboys because 
they were like they I I dated this guy who dressed like a cowboy like ha- like real cowboy but it didn't dawn on me at the time that there was absolutely no correlation <laughs> like this was a full like there's no cows there're no cows there're no cow <laughs> boys like there I was like this guy was in Halloween costume every day that's what <laughs> happened like that is what happened this was a 365 day Halloween costume a Halloween because costume, yeah. there's no other way you would be a cowboy like it just didn't happen yeah yeah <laughs> he's an urban cowboy yeah an urban a very urban cowboy he so maybe he needed, we he had love the look yeah yeah, it's a good look, it. honestly. I mean, it's <laughs> I like yeah, it. It, it is a good look. Yeah. So, um, did you grow up in the Bay Area? I did. Yeah, I spent. Um, I just I just moved out of the Bay Area a year ago, but I spent my whole life there. I never really made it out. Like I, I was born and raised in the Santa in Santa Santa Clara County, so like um, Sunnyvale. My father lived in, lived in Cupertino, um, just a few miles away from the Apple Building. Went to Cupertino High School. So yeah, spent uh, almost all my life in that area. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice area. And uh, what kind of household did you grow up in? Well, um, so I have, um, my parents are very nice people. They were like non-alcoholic, you know, to say the least. They were kind of on the goody two-shoe side, very religious. So they were super proud of you. (laughs) 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 At first they were. And then I strayed slightly, but yeah, no. So it was a very religious household. We went to the Sunnyvale Presbyterian church and, and all that. My daddy's from Kentucky and, and my mother is from Mexico city. So there was like a, you know, people are from Mexico city are typically known for being very Catholic. My mom wasn't very Catholic at all, but a lot of God in my house growing up. A lot of God. (laughs) Yeah. A lot lot of, a lot of praise Jesus. From the daddy side. Wait, wait. So mom was not super Catholic? Not really. Not really. She was I mean, she like, went to church and, you know, we went to the, the Presbyterian church, you know, which is very whitewashed, I have to say. Hopefully that's not super offensive to anyone. But yeah, that's how it was. But it was kind of interesting coming, you know, being a raised in a, like, I never thought of myself as biracial because mostly that was, you know, directed towards people of like African American and Caucasian mix, right? But it was interesting because when I'm with my mother's side of the family, they see me as the white girl. And then when I'm <laughs> with my Caucasian family, I'm the Mexican girl. So it's really weird. It is. That is. And so are they, do you go back to Kentucky and see them? Well, so um, I don't know. I've never been there actually. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, he's from there, but then they moved to San Diego, actually Carmichael, uh, like Southern California. Wait, where's Carmichael? Maybe that's, uh, I don't know where that is, to be honest. Uh, Carmichael's in Sacramento, but there's they, they did live in San Diego. That's where my father spent most of his childhood, actually. Okay. But okay. those those Southern roots are strong. <laughs> a lot of praise Jesus in my house. Well, and did you um was did you take to praising Jesus? I love me some Jesus to this day. I still love me some Jesus, but I see that in a very different way. I'm like very irreverent about it. Like I have to wonder if he was the ideal man. Did he have a huge penis? I don't know. <laughs> 
time, maybe. Is there a reason why everyone says, oh my God, oh God, <laughs> oh God. I don't know. It's a religious <laughs> experience, right? Oh I my God. In many ways. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, it's amazing. And so fun. are your parents, what was it like growing up in your house aside from lots of praise Jesus? Lots of what? praise Jesus. Uh, yeah, my parents were very... So my father was a civil engineer. He went to, he was like a, he went to Oregon, the Beavers. I don't know. Is that state or university? I get confused. But um, so he was a civil engineer and he worked at places like Lockheed NASA. And by the time he retired, he had a security clearance. So I don't actually know what he did. (laughs) Yeah. I remember one time meeting him for lunch and he called me from a 510 area code, which is like the Fremont area. Yeah, yeah. But we met in, we met by, uh, where's that? In Santa Clara somewhere. And I was like, how'd you get here so fast? And he was like, you know, so it was kind of alluding to the fact that his work number had a, you know, a different area code than where he was actually, (laughs) which back then was was odd. Right. 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 So I almost felt like I was dating a married man. I was like, this is weird. What is happening? (laughs) It was all these secretiveness. He could never tell you how, when did he? start getting a security clearance. Jeez, I must have, it was after I was out of high school and he worked for like government agencies that like built Bradley tanks, FMC. I don't even know what that stands for, but they built the Bradley tanks and, you know, he had been cited in some magazines about his opinions about, I don't even know what the, the opinions were. He, when we were kids, he used to talk to me about work and they were like government contract negotiations. And I would just be like, I'd glaze over and like, yeah, yeah. well, I'm 10. Yeah. What are you, why are you talking so to me about that? So proud of you. <laughs> yeah. oh like, gosh. what are you saying? So, uh, but he was a really good guy. He was a really good dad. And um, my mom, being Mexican, had many jobs after they divorced. <laughs> Actually, you know what's cool is that so my parents divorced when I was about seven, which was devastating to me. My dad was like the nurturing one in the house. And my mom was a, a bit of a, a bit of a hard ass. She's a very different person today. You know what I tell my kids? I say, you know, that sweet little old lady that comes to visit you. That is not the bitch that raised me. <laughs> she was hardcore, <laughs> but now I get it because, you know, she was trying to raise two kids on her own and she was working a lot. And so she was tired. So yeah. I wonder if she was tired, but I, I often say that uh, my predominant feelings when I was growing up was guilty and wrong. And I felt like, I felt like her predominant feelings were, she was either really happy or really pissed, but I felt like she saved the happy face for the outside world. I felt like we were latchkey kids, you know, and when she came home from work at five o'clock, you know, we would let ourselves in, little kids too, we would let ourselves in, like I'd walk home from school in like the third grade. Like, I can't imagine letting my son do that my kids do that. But, um, you know, second and third grade, I was, you know, uh, letting myself into the house and I, you know, she wouldn't come home till five or six or whatever. But when she came home, I don't know if this is a Mexican thing, but like the girls are expected to learn. Like I knew how to do dishes, laundry, mop the floor, clean the bathrooms. Like I could clean that whole house top to bottom by the time I was in the second or third grade. But uh, she would come home from work and it, I would hear the, her car pull up in the driveway. And then I would have that sinking anxiety feeling like, Oh shit. I'd look around the house and be like, Oh my God, what didn't I clean? I'm going to, what am I going to get in trouble for? And try to hurry and do things and then face the wrath of mom when she walked through the door. And I almost feel like that was like her decompression 
habit. Like she would come home and then just unload. She was just angry and tired. And so, yeah, a lot, a lot of, lots of feelings of guilty and wrong. And, uh, where was your, where was your dad? Like was he nearby? Yeah, he was real close. And, and when he moved out, he was within a bike ride distance. So, and again, at seven years old, I can't believe I rode my bike to his house from my mom's house. He rented, he rented an apartment. My mom still had the house. And so I rode, I made sure I knew how to get to his house. So I would ride my bike over to his house, you know, a mile or two away, but, um, I would never let my seven or eight year old do that. I know it's quite different when he's like, come home when it's not dark out. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, when the street lights come on. Yeah, Yeah. before Megan's Law. Yeah, yeah. We don't (laughs) do that shit anymore. I think think of myself like, my kids would not be able to figure out like how not to get hit by a car. That I mean, I just don't see it, but I know that 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 was how things were. It was. That that was literally my mom. We went to a like a county fair or something. Have you ever seen those big long plastic horns? She would legit stand on the front lawn and blow the horn when it was dinner time. Oh, oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> that wasn't embarrassing at all. My mom was <laughs> funny. She would do shit like um mow the front lawn. We lived on a kind of a busy street. She would mow the front lawn in her pink bikini and snow boots. Why? Why furry snow boots? Why? Why mom? Because that's Amazing. That's why <laughs> she, oh she was funny. She was a fun. She was a fun mom, but she like she was intense both ways. Yeah, she was either. Yeah, she was intense both ways. So when she was happy, she was a lot of fun. But when she was not happy, watch out. Why do you think she was so angry when she came home? What do you think that was about? Well, you know, I mean, so I'm in my fifties now and she was in her late thirties, early forties. And I and she actually, you know, we were in Silicon Valley, right? So she got some high tech, um, admin type jobs. Uh, they didn't call them admins back then. She was like a secretary, right? So, and, and I know she had some nice, um, managers and things like that, but my mom's just a really hardworking person. And I just, you know, she had no coping skills. She never did. Right. And I would imagine that after the divorce and after all that she had been through that she was, you know, dealing with a lot of stress. So, and then, you know, having, she was so controlling, like there was a, she was like a total clean freak. I am a, such a slob or I was, you know, I've gotten a lot better. My husband's a total neat freak too. So I had to step up my game, but, uh, you know, she was just so controlling that everything, there was a way to clean everything and her way was the only way. And if you did it different, then there was hell to pay. And it came in the form of this like wave after wave of like, um, like criticism and, you know, you never listen and, you know, and I've told you this a hundred times and, you know what I mean? It's just like that barrage of, and it just looking back, I go, that's, she was just unloading, you know, she must've just been tired and stressed out and the bills and the dogs and the, now we had a couple of dogs too. And man, I remember those, yeah, it was those poor dogs. There were times when money was really tight and there wasn't enough money for dog food. And I remember me and my sister as little girls trying to feed the dogs like cereal and soup. And, and they were, yeah, I mean, they, they were start, you know, they were starving. I don't know. It was really sad. I don't even know why she kept the dogs. I mean, she probably should have given them away sooner than she did, but she, you know what she did one time I, we got in a fight and I moved out when I was older and she put the dogs down. After I was like, oh my God, I felt like it, it very much felt like a retaliation. It was, 
I mean, it was just, she was hardcore. Like she put the dogs down because you moved out and she didn't want to deal with it anymore? I guess. I don't know. It was just, it was kind of out of the blue. There, no discussion. They just, she took him to the vet one day and they never came back. This, she was hardcore. So did you start drinking young early? Was that one of oh your my goodness. I, Yeah. I, I, I started drinking really young. And another thing that happened is I was abused by a neighbor when I was really little, like really little, like five and six years old by a neighbor. And um, I had, you know, I was going to church and there was all this talk about different, ide- you know, trying to live up to the I- ideals, right? And what I got was perfectionism, like you needed to be perfect in order to receive love and acceptance. So this idea of perfectionism combined with what was happening to me, I felt incredibly, there was like a lot of guilt and shame and this, and I didn't, you know, I couldn't articulate that at that age, but I felt uh, dirty. I felt bad. Like I was a bad girl. And what I had come to accept later on is that it was it's a it was a very conflicting experience because my body was responding, and but then I felt super guilty and like it wasn't what I wanted. Like I didn't want I didn't want any of that, but my body would respond, and I wasn't taught to have any boundaries. I wasn't given any like my feelings, like my negative feelings were never validated. Right. So there was never a time when I could just be like, Hey, this, I don't, I don't like what's happening. I'm going to tell, or you can't do that to me. There was like no, you know, I was raised to be a people pleaser. I was raised to be a nice girl, right? Don't upset anybody. You know, I couldn't, didn't want to upset my mom. You know what I mean? It was like, so anyway, I learned to stuff my feelings. But so for, so like I had my first drink at probably about eight years old, between eight and 10 years old. I was really young. Um, my mom had gone out on a date and I have an older sister and she and I were left home alone. And for some reason, I thought it would be a good idea to drink some of that alcohol. And I wonder if it came from the neighbor because he, as it turns out later, that my next door neighbor's dad was um, a raging alcoholic and I didn't know that. <clears throat> So I don't know where I got this idea to drink, but I did. One night when my mom was out, I decided to drink some of that brown liquid that was in the dusty old bottle in the cabinet. Somebody must have left it at our house after a party or something. That I will never forget that day that I, you know, it was there, there was like this excitement of doing something bad, like intentionally doing something bad. And <laughs> right, you get that rush. Ooh, I'm going to do something bad. And I, took a sip of that booze and it burnt my lips and it burnt my mouth. It burnt all the way down. But when it hit bottom, it's like that warmth spread through my whole body and I felt really good. And it was, the feeling was relief. The feeling was good. Like I felt good. And the juxtaposition between that good feeling and the self-consciousness and self-loathing and self-hatred at eight years old, that I was feeling was removed. And the drastic contrast between the two left such a, like it burned, like that experience was burned in my mind forever. Right. And I chased that feeling my entire life. I used to say I chased that feeling until I got sober, but if I'm going to be real, I'll tell you that I still love that feeling. I still love that feeling of relief, elation, joy, freedom. I mean, I still love all those feelings, but I just don't use drugs and alcohol to get that feeling anymore. Yeah. 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 I've had to find other ways. Do you think one thing that I, I think is interesting about what you said was this, you know, that your, 
that your body responded. And I think a lot of people to the abuse, I think a lot of people look back and they think, if I wasn't traumatized, if it wasn't a traumatizing experience, if I wasn't, didn't feel like I was being harmed at the moment, I didn't understand, then maybe it was something I did. Like there's this self blame that a lot of, a lot of people experience if it isn't, if they don't fight back, if they don't feel like they, you know, should have said something different. Like the expectation is that abuse is always experienced as incredibly scary, negative, painful. Yeah. Right. And I think, um, I'm just curious if that kind of resonated, like if there was confusion about that for you. Oh, for sure. I mean, I couldn't even acknowledge to myself that it felt good and that I liked it for a long time. I mean, it wasn't even till recently because it was a repeated thing that went ha- that went on, and so I felt incredible guilt and shame about that, right? But I was so confused, and I wasn't, I didn't have that kind of relationship with my parents that I could talk. I didn't have, I didn't have anyone I could talk to. As a matter of fact, um, my mom saw it happening one time, and she free, she lost her ever loving mind, and but it was like in a shameful. Like I was, a, I, I was bad kind of a way and it was super traumatizing. Like I didn't understand. I mean, I was just a little kid, you know, it's like normal that kids like play doctor, you know, that's not an uncommon experience. But what I know now as an adult is sometimes it's um, children being curious and sometimes it's children acting out what was done to them. And so that's what I learned. That's what I found out later is that the older child that did it to me a much older child did it to me. Um, somebody had done it to them as well, is what I found out later. And there's this grooming process that happens that that you don't, you know, that I wasn't looking back. I was like, oh my gosh, that's what, that's what happened. It wasn't my fault, but I like fell into it because I had no boundaries and wanted to be accepted and wanted to have friends, and it was so confusing. I was so confused for so long, but the message that I received, Ashley, was that I was a bad person. And I was going to church, and I used to ask God all the time just to fix me, and and I never felt fixed. I never felt changed. And at some point, I gave up on God. I decided that if I couldn't be good, that I was going to be good at being bad. And and uh, I just said F- it, you know. That's the isn't that the short form of the Serenity Prayer? <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. It's a short but I told it was like it's. You know what that was though? That was self abandonment. I completely abandoned myself. I you know decided that I was just going to. I went into survival mode for a very yeah. long time. Yeah, that I I relate a lot to that, and I, I had a similar experience with with a neighbor, and and I was young, and he was much older, and just really not understanding. Um, interestingly enough, my my grandmother actually um, saw it happening and no one addressed it with me. Like she stopped it, you know, same, similar situation. And she walked into a room and saw him doing stuff to you? Uh, into a tent, saw him into a tent outside. And, and they went and uh, my family went and talked to the parents of the, the, boy's family. Um, he was the son of the minister, um, on, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something where you were like, yeah, okay. Who, who, who wrote that one into the script? And what was interesting was they went and talked to 
his family saying, you know, stay away from her, blah, 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 because I was five and he was like 13 or something. But no one talked to me about it. No one talked to me about it. No one talked to me. And so what's interesting is for me, the trauma, the actual trauma that I experienced was how it was handled. It's like I, for years I would be in therapy talking about what happened and what happened in and of itself was confusing. But again, the grooming process, all those things, like I, I, I don't, I wouldn't say that I was traumatized by it. I think I was changed by it, but I was I don't think I was traumatized by it per se. But the traumatic piece was the reaction to it. And All so it's freaked out, huh? Yeah. Right. And so kind of what you're talking about where when your mom, you know, saw and freaked out, like there's this, there's this confusion around. And so often, and I get it, like, I, I don't know how I would respond to something like that. So I, I don't claim to be, you know, the authority on how to respond to your child having this, this circumstance. It took me years to figure out that the actual trauma was really around the way it was handled more than my actual experience. And that was why I wasn't healing from it. So the healing had to be from the response because that was the most traumatic piece for me because I didn't really understand the rest. What but I understood the, the response. What was the takeaway that you did you did you assign meaning about your value or who you were or did it change how you saw your, like, did it damage your self-esteem? It damaged, well, it, it, with my family, in my family, it got really complicated because my parents decided that maybe I had, I came out with it when I was in third grade and we had moved away from the area for, well, we had moved across country and, um, they had decided they couldn't deal with it and that it, and that I must be making it up. But grandma saw it. Yeah. I know. <laughs> okay. That yeah, there was crazy. There, yeah. Yeah. So the, and, and then there was it, like some drama happened at Catholic school and some, and a game of telephone happened, like the whole school found out. And by the time it got back, uh, it got back to the principal and the principal was told that the abuser was still in the area, which we were across the country at this point. So CPS was called. And so I was forced to, go into his office and recant. Yeah. And it came out late. So you were, he was in junior high or something and you were. No, I mean, he, he lived in Boston and I was already in California, but I, I came out with it when we came to California. So we had moved. So it happened in Boston and we moved to California when I was six or seven. And I came out with it when I was in third grade. And then, and then the school therapist told a bunch of parents in our school. Yeah. And, uh, it was super gnarly and, but I had to, but my trauma was all around how the adults handled it. Yeah. Well, and then the whole school, right. That's your community, which threatens your security and your, and you had to recant. I was taken into the principal's office and told that if I did not tell them I made it up, that my, uh, sisters would end up in the foster system. Oh my God. Well, no wonder. I was like, well, there it goes. There it is. There it is. You know, and, and the truth is though, you know, as a parent looking back and I, you know, as you're, we don't have a handbook for this stuff. Like, you know, some of it should be obvious. I'll give you that. Um, And, and I certainly have hashed that out with my family, but I always thought that the trauma had to be the incident. And so for, for years I was in therapy trying to like, 
and 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 every therapist wanted the trauma to be the incident, right? And that's what whatever. Fuck? What does it matter with these people? They're professionals. They're trained. Why aren't they? <laughs> this makes me so mad. Yeah, but I I think a lot of people the trauma can be in what happens when after. it comes out. Yeah, what's what happens after? Yeah, definitely. How how old were you when you first told someone? I never told anybody. And when did you start to open? I, after I got therapy? sober. So I was like in my early, I was in my mid twenties before I started addressing it with a professional in therapy. And being with, it was kind of oddly interesting. It wasn't until I spoke to like a recovery coach uh, within the last year or so who helped me address the, it was so strange. I wish I could remember how what the line of questioning was. Cause you know, I don't, you know, like when you're in therapy and you're the person, someone's asking you questions and, and you have to go inside for the answer. And he was asking me, he was asking me things about, um, the anticipation of it happening and, you know, cause it was a repeated occurrence. And so I knew it was going to happen. And, and he gave me a little bit of space and he made it safe to say, was there some excitement? knowing and, 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 uh, pleasure that came out of it and enjoyment that came like something that you liked it or whatever. And I had always seen myself as a victim and I had always seen it, but when, but when it was reframed in a way, like, what are the, I forgot how he framed it. It was like a pros and a cons thing. And I don't know, it was so bizarre, but it was like, okay, once I could kind of own that there was like this excitement about it. There is something, you know, and I, I hear drug addicts and alcoholics talk about it all the time, you know, this excitement about doing something you're not supposed to do. Like the anticipation was something exhilarating and it took me out of myself. And, and, and at the end of the day, that's what all addiction and obsession obsession is about. It's about taking you out of the present moment that for whatever reason is unacceptable. Like for whatever reason, there is this, mild river of misery or discomfort or anxiety or depression, like running in the background of our lives that we don't really connect to because we've been practicing disassociation for so long, right? That we've become completely detached from our feelings, from ourselves, from, and from all of that, that matters, you know, and it's like our feelings are there to serve us and protect us. You know, there are, and we have an, an intuition, internal alarms that go off, but uh, because we are so good at, disassociation and disconnecting from ourselves we can't read the signs anymore mm-hmm. we right paint those paint those red flags green <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 like, absolutely so yeah there were there were but anyway it wasn't uh to to go back to your question about when i started to address it i started i do i did a process therapy i did counseling i did all kinds of stuff but um for people like us it is so important to go to somebody who has personal experience and who has done their own work right and that's not always obvious who has actually done their own work a lot of a lot of people go into counseling and therapy because somebody has helped them And then we all have like this, it's human nature, right? It's like once you've been saved and rescued out of your suffering, you want to shout it from the rooftops. Oh my God, everybody needs to do this. You know, it's a very common experience when you see people get into recovery rooms. It's like, oh my God, everybody needs to know this. Um, Practical life skills and coping skills. But um, (laughs) yeah, and I was no different, but it is so important to find somebody. But not all therapists and counselors have done their own work and there is a difference. 
like all the people that you went to who didn't recognize that it wasn't the incident. It was what happened afterwards. Like that is like trauma uh, therapy 101, right? <laughs> I think, I think I didn't mention it. I don't think I, I don't think, yeah, yeah. I mean, they didn't, you don't, they, that's not, that's not, that's not your job is to mention yeah, it, right? You're right. You're like totally their right. job, yeah. their job is to ask the questions. If you had, if you were sexually molested when you were a child, then sometimes the incident is the trauma, but there is all this, but the, the trauma typically happens in a very short span of time, like an hour, 30 minutes, you know, uh, an inappropriate touch at a glance, you know, or sometimes it go, listen, that's not the point. The point is the years after the, the reoccurrence, the, the, the self-blame and it's really like the self-abuse that happens after, right? Self-abuse. Yeah. And any therapist or counselor worth their salt should be addressing that whether, because, you know, we don't, we go to them because we need help. If I had known what to do, I would have done it already. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's no shortage about that. (laughs) There's no shortage of clinicians who, you know, haven't done their own work. That's first absolute sure. And, and it's a, it's a big thing that I look for when I look at, you know, when I look at clinicians and like, what have you done for yourself? It's always good to get a referral to from someone who's, who's been able to achieve some results and resolve some things. Absolutely. So take me through your alter egos and your, your using and what, what did, uh, Arlena out there getting it on? What did that look like? <laughs> so funny that you bring up the alter egos. Cause I always talk about, you know, my, when I, when I share my story, if there's, I always talk about my alter egos. There were two alter egos, um, wimpy Wendy and badass Betsy, because I was either fighting or crying once I started drinking. <laughs> Like I had no off switch whatsoever. And I had spent so much, like the way I dealt with my feelings is suppression. I would just stuff it. Right. And then I drank and it would all come out like a volcano. And what are the two things that you want to suppress when you're, when you're trying to be a nice girl, right? You suppress your anger and you suppress your sadness. All that came out like an explosion and I never knew who was going to come out. And uh, later I realized, like much later, like within the last five years, I realized, you know what? I had a third alter ego, slutty Karen. (laughs) 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 She always, and now it's so funny that uh, Karen... Yeah, now now Karen is a um like a n- the nomenclature for yeah, like yeah. a middle-aged woman, an angry middle-aged woman with short hair who's yeah. overweight and very demanding. Uh my Karen was a total hoe. <laughs> <laughs> I know I was going to say I was like did she sleep with the manager is that while she was <laughs> making a complaint? Is that is that her uh slutty Karen? That's amazing. Yeah. So no, yeah. Oh and she joined the party every every night at some point along the way. <laughs> I sought my validation through through men mostly Mar- married and not married it didn't matter you know I would have you asked about how I was you know I I had this experience and I think a lot of people have this experience where you wake up the next morning incredibly hungover and you, you open your eyes and you're like oh my god that's not my ceiling <laughs> I would look down and go oh dear god that's not my comforter you look under the covers and you're like oh fuck I'm naked <laughs> yeah <laughs> You're like, like, it's still me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Afraid to look over. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I had a lot of those nights or mornings 
And I used to sort of encapsulate my whole drinking and using experience by saying that if it was in a bottle, a bag, or blue jeans, I was doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love you. Anything to fill the void, wherever the void may be. (laughs) So accurate. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, this is Ashley Lowe, Blasting Game. I am here to tell you that National Online Recovery Day will debut this year on September 22nd. In celebration, Lion Rock Recovery is sponsoring a live sober influencer panel on getting clean and staying connected. Join me as I moderate an hour-long interactive discussion with three prominent panelists live on the Lion Rock Recovery's Facebook page, September 22nd at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Mark it down. Visit www.nationalonlinerecoveryday.com for more event details. There's been, um, in my experience, there's been a lot of younger women coming in, younger, I guess, girls, women coming into the rooms, into sobriety, way younger than, than even I came in. And, uh, and, and there was one woman who came in and she had been drinking and she was a virgin. And I, I remember saying to her, like, you are a, a like, unicorn, you are a unicorn in this, in, in, all of 12 step program because <laughs> I don't How think does that happened. I don't think that happened. You know, I mean, it's like women drinking in AA or women, not, not in AA, but women, you know, when you're in a, a female alcoholic, things just get wild quickly. Get a and little like, loose. Yeah. Yeah. They just, uh, is she it, a lesbian by any chance? Nope. Not a lesbian. She okay. was just that young. She was just that, that young that her drinking, I don't know. I just, that's think, amazing. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I always joke around because uh, this lady came up to me afterwards when after I spoke at a meeting one time and I said it and everybody laughed and I'm I'm a sucker for a joke. But um, this lady comes up to me afterwards. She was like, oh, my God, I was so embarrassed for you when I heard you say that the first time. I know. And I was like, bitch, please. You are not a you were not a virgin when you showed up to Alcoholics Anonymous. What happens to people that they get so prudish once they get sober? She was embarrassed for you. She told me she was embarrassed for me because you said because a you bottle said bag of blue jeans. In. Yeah, I'll say that shit in front of my husband. Yeah, yeah, he knows I, I, how I got good. <laughs> <laughs> my husband, when they, my husband is just he always says it's like. You don't need to share with the kids all the grimy details of your using. You <laughs> know, like, I'm like, I don't think that my small boys want to know. I don't think that they're, they're three. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, he's worried about when they Maybe get later. older. I'm pretty sure that my sons will never want to know of my sexual ex- escapades when I was drinking and using. I think they will never, ever, there will never be a time where they will be interested in that. Okay, like, Mom, I'm just curious. Were you a yeah. hoe? Yeah. yeah. Mom, no. when you were a hoe, what was that like? <laughs> yeah. I, I just, you, know I, I, you know what I tell people now? I tell people now, because I'm a changed woman, don't you know? I tell people now that the only married man I sleep with now is my husband. There you go. <laughs> there you go. The one I married. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my husband. Yeah, he's the only, yep. one I, he's the only married yep. man. Which he appreciates. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very, you know, it didn't have to be that way. So they, they absolutely <laughs> appreciate that. So what did it look like? Like what, as, how did it start to get bad? Uh, you know, obviously the, the, probably <sighs> the quality, 
the quality of the room she woke up in probably was like a trajectory downward, right? You went from like beautiful ceilings, maybe, maybe, you know, correct. Yeah. To like popcorn Popcorn ceiling. ceiling. (laughs) Yeah. Um, what, Um, what, other than that, what was the, what did it look like? Yeah. So I started having what I called episodes. (laughs) <laughs> where, where I'd wake up the next morning and I'd just be like, Oh my God, what was that all about? You know, the crying jags or the, or the, the, the fighting with people. Um, I was losing all my friends. I had like this one drinking buddy, um, me and this girl, she was so much fun. She was hilarious. Uh, we would smoke weed and have, and go out and drink and chase men or let men chase us, whatever. We would have a great time, but we started ha- like, we would get into these arguments and, you know, I was losing all my friends. My family didn't really, you know, they distanced themselves from me. It was my mom and dad and my older sister. And I have a younger stepbrother. Um, he was too little. So, you know, that really, and he, he and I have always had a, oddly enough, he and I always had a great relationship. So that was not an issue, but yeah, I couldn't keep a boyfriend. (laughs) Weird. 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 Uh, why not? You know, um, <laughs> I don't get it. I don't it's so strange. I mean, I used to, um, the way I drank, I was always, I was a puker, which was super oh, attractive. No. Oh yeah. Like I used to joke around and say that if I didn't have splash marks on my shoes the next day, it wasn't a good time. Oh boy. <laughs> Pardon you puke kind of was uh, like my motto, right? Oh my gosh. Um, so I, you really minimized all my drama with humor, but it just wasn't funny anymore. It got to that really, really dark place where it got really dark. Like I hated who I was. I wanted to be anybody but me, you know, and I had always been like super hardworking and ambitious. And I was in this, um, I had this sales gig where I was a field rep for a transportation company and I was blowing it. I lived in a really nice apartment. I was only like 25 years ago. If you had a cell phone, you were badass. But the cell phone was like an old school phone with like a curly cord to a battery pack that weighed like 20 pounds. I was all, Hey, but I thought it was hot shit. It was funny. Um, but my, I couldn't, I couldn't keep, a boyfriend. I was just a, such a hot mess and I was terribly lonely. And I always thought that two things were going to save me. And, you know, God was out. He was done with me. He, I asked him to fix me for years and clearly I was a, a, a hot mess. And so I gave up on that and I couldn't even be good at being bad anymore. And I wasn't making the kind of money I wanted to make and I couldn't find the boyfriend. I totally fell into that. I totally bought into the Cinderella that's, that, uh, I was like this poor victim and this, and if I could just be good enough, like Cinderella was in Snow White and crazy ass bitches were so good, despite like all the victimization that they were, I don't know, right. How did that happen? Seriously. Right? It's like, how was Cinderella so happy all the time? She was insane. Uh, A little Stockholm syndrome. I don't know. But um, anyway, I thought I thought a man or money was going to rescue me because that whole Prince Charming that, that uh-huh. guy had, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. He or a man her. with money, men with money. Yeah. I really, that's why I like the married men, I think, because they always had a lot and they were older. They always had a lot of money and they were always desperate for love. Oh my God. I never wanted to have a marriage like they did, but, um, 
I wasn't. It was so funny because I really wasn't that far off. It turns out that it was love that saved me, but it showed up in a way that I I really would not have recognized, right? It showed up in the way that people didn't care about what was going on on the outside. They, They cared about what was going on in my mind and in my heart, and they validated my pain and they loved me. And that didn't happen until I showed up into the 12 step rooms. I gotta tell you, 26 years ago, there really was no other. There really was no, I didn't, I was not aware of any options. I was always so jealous of people who got to go to rehab. I didn't even know that that was a thing at the time. Even though when I was 14 years old, my mom had dated a guy that was in the program and in a 12 step program. And, uh, but I didn't know it was kind of, there was like a, a, an, a seed or an idea that was planted that life could be different or that there was a solution somewhere else. But, uh, I didn't key into that. I ended up living in the self-help section at Barnes and Noble, basically looking looking for the answers in a book. I thought I could think my way into right living instead of turns out it's the opposite. You live your way into right thinking, right? And it was my thinking that was a mess. And oddly enough, I came across I was since I was in sales, um Sales is a lot of, there's a lot of training that goes on in sales. And uh, I came across a Tony Robbins cassette tape series. That's how old I am. This uh, 30 day cassette. But it was the first time I was introduced to the idea that if I changed my mind and my thinking, I could change my life, that it was about cause and effect, that it was about finding the right mentor and just modeling, modeling somebody else's behavior. And, And I found that two years before I found the 12-step rooms. And what ended up happening was that um, <laughs> I had been dating a married policeman for a while. And that's why I never had a DUIs because uh, I had a, I literally had a get-out-of-jail-free card. Four times I got pulled over by the cops, loaded, and they would let me go or call my boyfriend. And I never went to jail because of that. But um, one night my sister and I went out, I had, I had to move back in with my mom because my life fell apart. I had to, or no, maybe it wasn't, no, I wasn't living with her yet. Um, that wasn't until I got sober. But one night my sister and I went out because she's like the last person to hang, uh, out. To hang out with me. Yeah. She's, yeah, she's not, not a lot of friends in her world, but um, so she went out with me and I got super hammered. And on the way home, Actually, we went out to the bar because the married policeman, I started dating his best friend and he was supposed to meet us at the bar and he wasn't there. So I was really sad about that. And then on the way home, we passed by the policeman. He had pulled somebody over for a field sobriety test and I saw him and apparently I lost my mind. This is, I say apparently because this is secondhand information. I blacked, I was blacked out for this part, but my sister tells, told me the next day it was a humiliating like that. <laughs> such a humiliating experience to go to my sister's house the next day and have to find out what happened. But apparently um, I lost my mind and I punched the windshield with my hand and cracked, broke it in a couple places. I'm a small person. It must've been a really shitty windshield, but um, it broke in, a, <laughs> broke in a couple places. She said I was pulling on the steering wheel, trying to make us, she was driving my, my car. She said, uh, I was Boy, trying was to crash. She relieved. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> she, uh, she was trying to get us home and we were so close to being home. And, um, she said, I, I kicked her in the face while she was driving. She was trying to get me home. Oh, we, we were only like two blocks away from my mom's house where we were going to stay that night where she was living. And through a series of events, the police were called. I don't know why I didn't get taken to jail, but the ne- the next morning I woke up with that, like, sinking, sickening feeling that something terrible had gone on the night before. And it was that pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization that you hear about. And um, that was my bottom, but it took me two years 
of research and asking the questions, what is an alcoholic? Am I an alcoholic? When did I cross the line? How come all the people around me can drink like this and they're not an alcoholic? Or are they an alcoholic? It was like all these questions that revolved around this idea of alcoholism. And it took me a really it took me a lot of pain to come to the conclusion that yes, I could not handle the alcohol. And I had my last drink on my 25th birthday. I had a very, a really bad night. And I woke up the next morning with alcohol poisoning, as it turns out, um, didn't go to the hospital before because I was accustomed to it. I was accustomed to it. I would throw up so often that I, uh, so hard that uh, I would have petechia. Petechia is broken blood vessels under underneath your eyes. Um, I was so accustomed to alcohol poisoning that I didn't recognize it for what it was. Um, but yeah, so that the next morning I woke up and I knew I was never going to drink again. And I haven't. I took a big bong hit after that to handle the nausea. But um, yeah, I showed up to 12-step rooms, not having drank for five months, but I didn't know you couldn't count your clean time. You know, you couldn't count your sobriety date until you quit everything. And it was shortly thereafter. I had to move into my mom's house because my I had to get rid of the, Well, I, I guess I did the sales job for a little while after that, but it was just like a name only. I really wasn't making very much money. And uh, I had been dating this guy and we had to break up. <laughs> He had to break up with me. We had to break up. We had to do it. We had to do it. He had to do it. He was like, I'm done. And uh, he's a very nice guy. But uh, yeah, he must have been kind of sick too, because who wants that? Who allows that kind of drama into their life? I don't know. Sticks around for that. Yeah. You know, water seeks its own level. So when someone is like, oh, my boyfriend's really sick. And and I was like, oh, what does that say about you? (laughs) But um yeah, so that's that's how I got sober is, you know, I had a really bad night, two years of investigation, and then finally made it to the rooms, as we say. And that's when everything changed. I found a, a sponsor who would take you show me what, she, you know, I did everything she told me to do. I was terrified. You, you get to these rooms and they say, oh, you know, there's two things that terrified me, working with women right? Because mm. oh, yeah, were competition. They were not my friend because all my validation came from men. So I spent a lot of time and money decorating the outside, but I had felt like I had nothing on the inside and that was terrifying. I was like, oh shit, what am I going to... What am I going to do with another woman? Like, I don't know how to be friends. It's like my mom would disown me on on, her, on the regular. And, you know, so I, I was terrified of the women, but I was more scared of getting loaded again. So they kept, I kept hearing that this fourth, like if you didn't do this, like some people would do steps one, two, and three, then relapse before the fourth step. I was like, hell no. I was going to, somebody said, oh, only one person in a hundred gets sober. And I was like, that is absolutely going to be me. I was super competitive. Um, so I was like turning that defect into an asset. So I asked this lady, you know, I asked her, I asked her if she would listen to my inventory, but her response was so sweet. She was like, I would be honored. And it brought tears to my eyes. She said, but we're going to start with step one. <laughs> so that's what we did. I and I sought the solution with the same intensity and vigor that I sought drugs and alcohol. With that same, like, I'm an all or nothing girl. And listen, they said, oh, you, all you have to change is everything. I was like, sign me up. There was nothing. I hated myself. There was nothing I wanted to keep. I didn't think I had anything of value. And as it turns out, you know, they they loved me in a way that allowed me to blossom and to, fi- and to find out all the good parts about myself. And it was in, it was in recovery that I found out that I had this 
limiting belief that I thought I was bad. I used to joke around, talk about it in my story all the time about, and I have already said it today, like where I thought, you know, I, if I couldn't be good, I was going to be good at being bad. But the key word is being bad. I thought I was bad. I believed in my subconscious that I was bad. And it turns out that I was just sick. It was not a moral issue. I was just mentally, you know, I had such low self-esteem and no coping skills. And so that's that's when the work began. And I'll just tell you that it's been a magical journey over the last 26 years. Just this this, this self-discovery, this the lifestyle, the, you know, finding new purpose and meaning for my life. And, you know, the thing that I thought was going to, I thought it was the end of the fun. I thought it was going to be the end of my life. Turns out it was just the beginning. Uh, not only do I have more fun, but it's cheaper. And I remember it. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, uh, I, I really thought that it was going to be the end. I got sober at oh, 19 sure. and, and same thing thought I, I thought it was, my life was over. Do you think and about your wedding? You're like, I'm not going to be able to drink champagne at my wedding. I have, I have, I have a great story about that, which is that I was like, well, what am I going to do on my 21st birthday? And what am I going to do? And what am I going to do on my wedding? Right. (laughs) And and priorities are a little jacked. Totally amazing. And my sponsor (laughs) said to me, she said, well, do you have someone? She says, do you have someone that wants to marry you right now? And I said, (laughs) no. And she goes, why don't you wait and worry about that when there's someone that wants to actually marry you? like so good okay okay yeah um and and it was actually so practical yeah i was like geez (laughs) rough rough my husband and i when we're called spiritual rudeness yeah exactly exactly (laughs) i was like okay fine the obvious she oh when i was when my husband and i were planning our wedding and we sat down to and he's sober a few more years than i am and we sat down to to talk about the signature cocktails and this whole thing and uh and i'm sitting there and just laughing at the moment because I let other people pick and it, it wasn't, we toasted with apple cider, whatever it is. Like yeah, the, Martinelli's I, almost, or something. I almost said apple cider vinegar, not yeah. apple cider, <laughs> but Martinelli's. We toasted with Martinelli's and, uh, <laughs> and it was, I mean, it was like nothing. It was a blip yeah. on the radar. And, but the thing that, to worry about. that was a real concern of mine and my I 21st know. birthday. I was so worried about that. So my 21st birthday rolls around. I'm still sober. And I had done all the things, Vegas and, you know, I had done all the things, all whatever the, the things. things, whatever the things or the people were, I had done them. And, and so I took a, <laughs> I, t- I took a group of my friends and we went um, skydiving. And so we just, I, my 21st birthday. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, yes, outside. Well, out of an airplane. Yeah, like, I was thinking uh, Vegas has those. Oh, yeah, indoor... yeah, yeah. Those indoor things. No, no, no. This way, I outside. took a group of friends and I said, <laughs> okay, I've done every, I've done all the other things. Uh, it's my 21st birthday. We're going to jump out of a plane. And my mom goes, do you have to risk your life at every turn? Is this, is it, is it, is it a requirement? Like, what are you doing? Why does Uh, this have to be a thing with you? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But you know, we had a great time. I had a great time. I was like, you survived. I survived. I did. I did survive. Mm -hmm. But those were the things I was so worried. And I have been to more clubs, more parties, more, I mean, I have been to more crazy things sober than I ever did. I mean, I I was such a gnarly drug addict and alcoholic. I barely made it out of the house. Like 
I drank and used by myself. So you pregame like, so hard. She didn't I make pre- exactly. I pregame <laughs> so hard that I often didn't make it to the game. So you know, it's but I really did. I thought the party was over. I thought the fun, I, not the party. I thought the fun was over. Tell me about your marijuana maintenance plan because this is a this is a, a huge thing that a lot of people experience, and I, I get it. How? Yeah, it's so what is that? Dangerous. And how did that work? Yeah, there's so much talk about it now. I mean, we used to call it the marijuana maintenance program, but that is, and it's such a hot topic now because, you know, marijuana is legal and a lot of people see it or think of it as a, a medicinal thing. And I suppose, you know, in reality, that's what happened to me is I smoked weed for another five months before I got sober until I had to, but that was five months. That wasn't that wasn't a long term plan, right? I had to recognize that I was, and that I had I did have an experience. Like it took me sixty days to get thirty because um, I did smoke some weed, and then I realized how I was aware of how it affected me. Like it made me really irritable with my family. You know, I just wasn't the person I wanted. It made me feel bad about myself or whatever. And I had to recognize that I was powerless over that too. That I could not, if I was going to smoke it, I could not predict what was going to, I could not control what was going to happen afterwards. I had to admit that I was powerless over everything. And that's when my abstinence journey began. And that was April 23rd of 94. That's when I was free of everything. Free. Yeah. That's when the work begins. It did because, you know, when you're smoking weed, you're not really, I mean, it's self-medication, right? You're creating more problems. You're not really resolving anything. It's only when you have um, cleaned, when you're free, when you're free of every mind altering thing that the feelings can actually come up. They need, they need to come up so they can come out. They need to be processed, right? And I didn't learn how to process any feelings until I found recovery. And, um, you know, and I'll just give you a quick, I love this. Uh, I came across uh, Tara Brock not that long ago, maybe a few or last few years. And she has this process called RAIN. It's a RAIN meditation. And RAIN stands for recognize, allow, investigate, and nurture. And she's got a free 10-minute um, me- guided meditation on YouTube that you can look up. But it's so such a easy, practical way of resolving negative feelings. Right. And so there's, I learned about this term called spiritual bypassing. You know, it's like, it's very, I want to do some spiritual bypassing. Uh, Last summer, my son broke his back, my 16 year old. Yeah. He broke his back, but it wasn't a spinal cord injury. Thank God. It was so close. But, um, he crushed a vertebrae on an ATV um, and had to wear a back brace. And my instant response to that situation was, as I wanted to do some spiritual bypassing, I was like, oh, thank God he's okay. It wasn't a spinal cord injury. You know, he, you know, all he has to wear is a back brace. Um, you know, thank God we had the money to pay the hospital bills. We have the insurance, you know, let's get grateful. Let's, you know, my life could have been very different. You know, his life would have, could have been changed for us. Oh, let's get grateful. But I had this, um, I have like this hurt button that's like on delayed reaction. Like I don't typically feel my feelings right away. It happens later. Like even in a stress, like something stressful can happen. And I'll be like, oh, wow, I handled that so well. And then two days later, I'm like on the floor crying. Yep, I do that too. Yeah. Or I'm like, or I'm like a couple of days later, I'm like, why am I so miserable? Why am I so angry? Why am I so, you know, what is happening? But over the years, I've recognized that, um, that it's 
the trauma, it's, like, it's almost like trauma, you know, and then it's on delayed reaction. It shows that it shows up later. So if you're smoking weed and doing stuff like that, you don't give yourself the opportunity to process your feelings because you're high, right? You're disassociating uh, that Pink Floyd comfortably numb. That was like my favorite thing, but that's what's happening when you're smoking weed. And I don't want to live like that anymore. I want to learn how to resolve my feelings. So that's what I did. Um, I was fine for a second. I recognized that I was spiritual bypassing. And then I leveraged the rain meditation where you go into this meditation and they say that the issues are in your tissues. And I totally believe that, you know, like I held on to the sadness. I held on to the fear that racked my body. Like I was having tension headaches and that's anxiety, like generalized anxiety. It's not generalized. It was specific, but I was disassociating. So I didn't know where it was coming from. So, um, but so it's so important that to have tools to help you resolve process feelings to resolution so that you're not carrying baggage, that emotional baggage with you. Yes. yes that don't break your back. I don't know what will. Oh, so. I, did the, um, it was funny that you mentioned that did quarantine do that to you? The delayed for me, for me, quarantine, the, the hit of quarantine, it took me or the, the pandemic rather, and, and and everything that went down with that. It took me like three months. And then all of a sudden I had a freak out, whereas my friends had been freaking out the whole time. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and I had, a strong such, one. I, yeah. I had such a delayed reaction. It was exactly like that. I was, so they, I was, all of a sudden I was a mess and it was super delayed. And it, it, but it's been my coping mechanism because I know that in the moment, I have to be the strong. I have to be. I can't fall apart in the moment. That right. the, the world needs me. Survival. To be yep. Yep. So, with your son and the spiritual bypassing, what did so you you needed to feel the feelings of being afraid and what happened? Yeah, it was a it was a pretty like our lives could have been so different, right? And it was such a close call. Like I saw the X rays, and it was centimeters, millimeters. It was a very small margin. It was like this close to being, he to be him being paralyzed. Like it could have been so, like the bones, but like the bone spurs, it was like you see the x-ray and how close it was to his spinal cord. And I, I don't listen. It wasn't like, anyway, if it had been worse, what it, you know what happened? This is such a God thing. And this is why I was grateful at first is because when he fell, the ATV landed on top of him, but he fell into a little ditch. Like there was like a divot in the ground. And so when the ATV, when it was big, when, when it landed on him, the majority of the weight of the ATV was on the ground because his body was physically in the divot. Like if that's not a God thing, I don't know what is, but that is not to say that it didn't scare the crap out of me. It scared me so bad. And then everybody was telling me, everybody has an ATV story about how somebody crashed and died. It's like when, once I talked about what happened, everyone had a story about it. And I don't know if it was the stories that, like you said, it's not the incident. It's the what happens later. It just really scared me. It really scared me. And I didn't acknowledge it or process it right away. It took, it took a few days maybe a couple of weeks for me to acknowledge what was really happening. And I had to process, I had to be sad. I had to be angry. I was angry at the people who let him ride it. I was angry that it happened. I was, you know, just so scared and grateful. I mean, it was, it was hard. Yeah. And we as 
you know, alcoholics and addicts, we're emotional people, right? We're super emotional, which is why I chose, you know, that kind of medicine uh, to cope with my feelings. I often say that it saved my life at a point because it, when I was, if I was young and I didn't have any coping skills, if I didn't have drugs and alcohol and had to feel all the feelings I was feeling when I hated myself at the most, I don't know if I would have survived. It was already close as it was. And it really, I kind of had a little bit of suicidal ideation in 14, you know, 24, 25, but you know, nothing serious. I didn't have a plan or anything, but I certainly wanted to die, you know, but thank God for drugs and alcohol because that's kind of saved me. So it's just crazy how it all works out, right? So relate to that. Yes, absolutely. You are doing a lot of cool things with your sobriety in your life right now. You have this amazing podcast. Thank you. uh, One of the top recovery podcasts, ODAT. What has it been like doing that? Oh my God, it has been so amazing. So because I'm 12-step oriented, I was so afraid to do the podcast. And I had actually, this is actually my second podcast. My first one was, um, I was in Silicon Valley as a high-tech sales rep. So I had started, there were no women doing those podcasts. So I had started that, but I wanted to do one on recovery. It was really on my heart. And I just was wrestling with this, oh man, it's but it's against the traditions and blah, blah, blah. And then my friend, so I named, the podcast after my favorite 6 a.m. We met daily, man. And if you're meeting at 6 a.m. to go to a, a meeting, you are hardcore. You are serious about your recovery and it attracts people who are very serious about their recovery. It's amazing meeting, still going. And I get to go because of COVID. So that's that's super fun. But um, my, my dear friend Gina was at the 6 a.m. meeting and she got in a car accident and died three hours later. And she and I are about the same age and, you know, things were taken off in her life. And I thought to myself, it was so tragic. And I thought to myself, you know what? I don't want this dream to die with me, right? I have this intuition. I had this feeling. It felt like a God thing. And I tried to deny it for a really long time. But after that happened, death has a way of clarifying things. And I just felt like it was important to recover out loud and be visible. I was visible about being an ass when I was drinking and humiliating myself. Why am I not proud of overcoming something deadly. It's a near-death experience. Addiction is no joke. It kills, so, it kills tens of thousands of people, millions of people all the time. It's like, why are we hiding this? And so I just decided to be bold and do it. And I got zero blowback. Like nobody gave me, nobody has given me a hard time about it. Um, in fact, I get letters from people sharing how it has helped. And that's what keeps me going that, you know, if I, if I, you know, they always say, oh, if you, if I just help just one person, my podcast has been downloaded <laughs> in 53 different countries. Like the message is getting out there. People are sharing their stories. So I feel really good about that. And I've had some amazing experience. My dear friend, Katie was the second person to be a guest on my podcast. And she died suddenly two weeks after her 40th birthday from the flu. This is way before COVID. I don't actually think it was the flu. She had a, a an injury on her hands that I think gave her like a blood infection and it presented like the flu, but that's a whole nother can of worms. But, you know, after she passed away, I had her interview, you know, and was able to share that, you know, she had three kids, you know, maybe one day they'll get to hear her story through the podcast. And, you know, um, her sister told me that, you know, they had had a falling out around her using experience and, uh, 
Katie didn't know. Katie had forgiven her sister and her sister didn't know that she had forgiven her about it until after she heard the podcast after she died. So it felt like a, you know, some amazing, I mean, that's just a tip of the iceberg. Amazing things happen when people start sharing their truth and sharing their vulnerability, right? That's where true courage is. It's not, it's not in white knuckling it or holding your mud or suppressing your feelings. That doesn't require any courage. It takes courage to do that self-examination that's required of recovery. Those are the people who are the badasses in my book. I agree. I agree. And and and, and ha- doing a podcast and having seen people um, have those incredible transformations and be able to share those experiences that other people didn't know about and watching it be downloaded in different countries is really... Um, it's it is it is pretty cool. It's a really cool experience, and I I just think it's I think death absolutely has a way of clarifying things, and I I just love that you were willing and able to step out and recover out loud because I think the more of us that recover out loud that don't look like the you know man under the bridge with the brown paper bag, I think the more of us that are out there doing that the less stigma will be around this topic. And there's just so many people suffering in the shadows and, you know, you hear about it, right? You hear, I mean, I'm sure you have it where people see your podcast and then they reach out to you on Facebook and it's someone you haven't heard from in 20 years. And, you know, I can't tell you how often that happens to me and like, Oh, my sister, Oh my, this, I haven't heard from this person and I don't even know how long, but the, they know because I'm recovering out loud, they know that they, that, I'm someone they can talk to about it. And it just happens. It's, it's, I am not sure that I would believe someone who said they'd never been touched by addiction in some way, shape or form. It's very rare. It's yeah. very rare. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they live yeah and I feel like, so now, you know, after doing this for so long, I feel like, you know, now my life's work is about helping people rebuild their self-esteem after addiction. You know, I, f- I feel like there is one thing that determines your your relationships, your uh, money, and your health and fitness, and that's your level of self-esteem. You know, if I track all my stuff back to the beginning, it, it all my dysfunction happened because of a low, a low sense of self-esteem. And so now I have this uh, class, it's called reInvent. It's how to rebuild your self-esteem after heartbreak, addiction, and trauma. It's a self, you can find it information. It's for women. Sorry, go. Sorry, guys. Some, some other dude's going to have to step up and do it for the men. Um, <laughs> because it's a very intimate women's there. These are small classes for women. I have a new class, uh, starting. I have a new, a new classes starting every six or seven weeks, um, depending. Yeah. So I know by the time this is published, the next class will have already started, but, um, it's at selfesteemcourse.com. And uh, that is my life's work now. And I've actually done a presentation that's going to be aired in the women's prison system. Yeah, I'm super, because I feel like this is information that they need. You know, the the rate of women returning to, most of the women in prison are there for drugs, drug and alcohol related issues, right? And so I feel like if I can help them rebuild their self-esteem, that they will be less likely to return. I mean, granted, they have to do all the work and it's not that easy and it's like an ongoing process. I often talk about it like um, you wouldn't eat a salad 
and expect to be skinny for the rest of your life, right? Or, um, I do. Oh, I'm I eat sorry. a salad and I 100% eat a salad and I'm like, why am I not skinny immediately? <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> it's an ongoing, yeah. Where you go to the gym once and you're like, yeah, my abs out. Uh, Oh, it's under all your fat. That's where they're at. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So self-esteem is the same thing. It's like, a, it's like a plant. You have to water it. And if you don't water it, it shrivels and dies. And so your self-esteem needs constant. So uh, I have a, um, a membership site called the Brainwashers Club. And uh, I'll, I'll leave a link for that too. But uh, the Brainwashers Club came from um, when I was first in recovery, just before I met my husband. I was dating this guy and I... So when I stopped drinking, suddenly men were everywhere. Suddenly I was ah, a catch. Who knew? Who knew? The one thing. <laughs> throwing up stopped. <laughs> yeah, the vomiting in public. Yeah. Uh, yeah, apparently that's not attractive. Who yeah, knew? who knew? <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, but I was dating this guy and I was, I was trying to break up with him. And he was like, you know, I think those people are brainwashing you. And I was like, yeah, they are. Uh, my brain needs some washing. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, and so I always thought that that was super funny. So I was like, okay, that needs to be the next step after the self-esteem class is like this ongoing support, which is brainwashers club. So I love it. That'll be fun. I love it. Well, um, we're going to have all the links to your podcast, the ODAT, O-D-A-A-T it's podcast. ODAT chat. ODAT chat. Because it's a chat. Yeah. We're having a little o- chat. I'll ODAT love. chat. Yeah. ODAT stands for one day at a time. So we're chatting about how to stay sober one day at a time. ODAT chat podcast. And I didn't um, think it through when I named it, right? Like I thought everybody knew what ODAT, what ODAT meant. Yeah. Turns yeah. out, no, that's just like a little subculture nomenclature. Yeah. And and I didn't spell it right either. Some people spell it O-D. It's A-T. spelled O-D-A-A-T yeah. chat.com. I didn't think it through. I, okay. like it. I knew what it was. Does that count? You did? Yay. Yeah. There. <laughs> but I, I've been in 12 steps since I was like 14. You better know. <laughs> I better know. Um, well, I, I, what you're doing is amazing. And I love, I love the Brainwashers Club and <laughs> that it's so good. And Reinvented is available on self-esteem work. Selfesteemcourse.com. See, I was thinking it through a little bit there because that's SEO, the search engine optimization. People type in self-esteem course and hopefully my class, the reInvent class will pop up. Got it. <laughs> Selfesteemcourse.com. So you can teach a new, an old dog new trick. <laughs> I'm impressed. I like it. I like it. And, uh, and so all of this will be in the show notes. And Arlena, you're amazing. I just, I so appreciate you. And Oh, thank you. I had so much fun. You're so, you bring out the best of me. Thank you so much. Oh, I, I love it. Thank you. You got a gift for this. We'll have oh. fun. On, and you're going to be on my podcast. I'm so I'm, excited. <laughs> me too. We're going to so have fun. I, I, I had to hold back. I had a thousand questions for you, but I'll... I'll- I, I love being, <laughs> I love doing it with a podcaster who, who wants to interview, you know, I was like, right. how did this... Hold I'm, it back, girl. Hold it back. This is not your show. I love it. I love it. Well, I'm so excited to be on your show and to have you. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you. That's awesome. Thanks. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources. 
find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life. <laughs>